Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It is a pleasure to have you with us. The United States military takes its history seriously, though taking history seriously can be uncomfortable when it requires a willingness to confront the controversies that historical commemorations and symbols can inspire. The recent decision by Marine Corps Commandant General David Berger to ban the public display of the Confederate battle flag, a symbol that he said had the, quote, power to inflame division within the Corps, has encouraged broader soul-searching about the politics of historical names and symbols. For a U.S. Army, that has several installations named after Confederate officers who fought against the United States, such as Braxton Bragg and John Bell Hood, or even Confederate political leaders who never served in the U.S. Army at all, such as Henry Benning, the question is particularly acute. How, if at all, can these names placed on installations during the Jim Crow era remain in place in a dramatically changed social and cultural environment? How, if at all, should the armed forces reconsider their names and symbols to appeal to a changing society? Whose heritage is worth remembering? And how can the military adapt its message to assure that all service members are welcome and valued? Our guest today to help us wrestle with such questions is Colonel Vianessa Vargas of the U.S. Air Force and of the War College, Class of 2020. Colonel Vargas is a logistics readiness officer in the Air Force, last at Joint Base Charleston, who has been, as a student at the War College, a participant in the War College's Eisenhower Series College program, and is on her way after graduation to Transcom at Scott Air Force Base in Illinois. Colonel Vargas has also recently completed a strategy research project at the War College on the topic of, quote, Jim Crow lives, Army posts as racist symbols. Welcome to A Better Peace, Colonel Vargas. Thank you very much for having me, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start by having you describe your initial interest and approach to this topic in your research project. So, Ron, I I think back to the early days of being in Army War College, and our instructor put up a word on the board, and he underlined it. And it it said, historical mindedness. And I sat back and I looked at that from an Air Force officer's perspective. We don't often talk about history very much, and it could be because we're the more baby of the services next to the Space Force, of course. But going through and matriculating through the Army War College, um, taking the trip to Gettysburg, speaking with other students, looking at some of the art on the walls, it came to me that this, there's something that's here that needs to be discussed. The Army reveres its history, but I don't know if the full history is taught. And it becomes very frustrating to me as a military officer that here in what was 
2019, I still have to look at pictures of Confederates as almost a place of, of reverence, almost elevated. And it made me think, have we really dis- really dug into this topic of how we got here to where we put images on our walls of, of people who led a rebellion against our country? And not only are the pictures on the walls, at one time, you know, rooms were named after them. And coming from Virginia, I'm, I'm a participant in this entire debate about what place do monuments hold in our town square? And so there's this whole discussion that's happening. And in the army, it's not happening. And so I, I said, I need to talk about this. I need to research how we got here and, and what does this mean for us as leaders? And, and that's really what drove me to not only research the topic, but now have a full, um, a full want to study the entire impact of historical mindedness on what we do in the United States military. Interesting. And you had already started on this project when the uh, Marine Corps Commandant made his initial announcement about the uh, Confederate battle flag? I did. I started it several months prior. And when he made his announcement, I said, wow, this is a great time to delve into this topic in full force. And it gave me more renewed energy to not just research it as a strategy research project, but also speak about it in social media from a historical mindedness perspective. Not me saying this is bad, this is good, but just introducing the topic across social media. And I've been very excited to participate in debates with top historians, as well as the Virginia lieutenant governor started following me. So this has been a great time to participate in in the debate. Do you think that the um, Marine Corps Commandant's directive uh, will have an impact on other services? I hope it does. The United States Navy has a ship that's named for a Confederate. Um, Likewise, many of our installations also have streets that are named after Confederates, halls that are named after Confederates. We can look at some of our our universities, you know, our, our military universities. So it's, it's not just, it's not just, okay, we have this Confederate flag on base. It's this entire environment of elevating these people who were very problematic. They stood for something very specific in our history. And it now asks us to look at ourselves and say, what does this mean for us now in 2020? And so I hope it does have an impact. Um, that was a strong move that he made, particularly as you you look at some of the places where people are recruited from. And so I think that that should have an impact across the services. I do think the services should look and say, okay, where do we have our bases located? What are our what are our streets named after? And I hope it stirs it for the army to just kind of like say there are no plans to rename any of our installations. I think that's I I think we're missing an opportunity here to project the army as a dynamic figure in our American society. And so we, mm-hmm. we have to participate in the debate and not sit on the sidelines. Right. I mean I I a recent article in War on the Rocks points out that while we do have installations that are named after Union officers, such as General uh, William Campbell and General General uh, George Meade, 
um, we've actually closed uh, both uh, General McClellan and General Winfield Scott's uh, bases, and we don't have a general, well, we don't have a, a Fort Grant and we don't have a Fort Chamberlain or goodness knows a Fort Sherman. And so the, the question then becomes uh, the, the bases that are, that stand out when we talk about these things um, were built uh, at around the turn of the century uh, in the, in the American South. They, they reflected the attitudes of the societies in which they were constructed. I would say not only the society in the Southern states themselves, but let's say in the United States more broadly, perhaps even at the turn of the century. Um, if we are historically aware of the reasons behind the initial naming, um, what should our rule of thumb be? So let's say if society has changed uh, and societal attitudes have changed, um, what should a rule of thumb be for figuring out when and how the time has come to come up with new names for institutions and installations? I think we have to first consider that people are highly flawed. So to even name an installation after a person, you could be looking at some problems, you know, decades down the road, if not a century down the road, as our military begins to change because our society has changed. So I think that anytime you name it after a person, you know, we can say, you know, several years from now that we no longer stand for whatever that person stood for at the time that they were alive. And so that's where we kind of look at ourselves now and we have this thing with the Confederates. So I think it's, it would be prudent to consider names of local features, cities, towns, things of that nature. So anytime you name it after a person, you're going to, you're going to face that Ron. So I think you have to, you have to keep that in mind. And if we're not going to do that, then we should name it. We should name them after people who did absolutely serve in our unit, in our uniform service for our country. And they continue to have a stellar life, even after leaving the service. I think that should all come into the thought process and the decision matrix for naming it after another person. Interesting. Um, what do you say to, uh, to someone who would respond, well, these names have a tradition all their own that people might not even know, uh, soldiers who have service members who have proudly served in the uh, uh, at Fort Bragg or Fort Benning, they might not even know who they're named after. They just know that they are very proud of having been at Fort Bragg or Fort Benning. How do we, how do we deal with the question of, you know, are, is, is, is the, are the, the, the names themselves divisive or is the decision to remove or change the names? What is di divisive? I think the names themselves are divisive because the people who actually served were divisive. Those mm. were the ones that were divisive. And that's what we need to consider. And so I think that this is where you have to consider both history and heritage. You know, it's the heritage of being a member in the United States Army that should make us proud. We should be proud as Americans for the things that we have done, um, both overseas as well as here in the United States. And so we, there's heritage there. The history there is something that we are not always proud of. And there are things that we must learn from. And so this is where we have to educate our members. So I am one that since I've now stepped along this, this path of being more historical minded, I'm concerned about symbols that I see, flags, 
symbols that are on people's t-shirts, things of that nature, they all stand for something. And before I just blindly wave a flag and not really understanding the meaning behind it, this is where we we come up short. So I think it's it, it shouldn't just be a matter of just removing the names and then we move forward. I think we talk about the names, they should be discussed. There should be some history there. We never want to erase history. And that's certainly not what I'm advocating for here. Mm-hmm. But then we move forward with a full educated populace that understands what this means to be stationed at now, you know, whatever we decide to rename Fort Bragg. Have you in your in your conversations, either in uh, in seminar at the War College or when you've spoken to the public or when you've interacted with uh, people online about this, since we are talking about army installations largely here, um, do you get much pushback from the fact that you are an outsider because you are an Air Force officer? I actually don't. Mm-hmm. Not at least not to my face. Um, <laughs> I and you know I have heard some feedback that you know, gosh, here she goes talking about the Confederates again, and I I have heard that, um, but mm-hmm. I I tend not to get involved with the hearsay. But when I do speak to people one on one about it, and you take them down the path that. This was a vestige of Jim Crow, you know, and and you, okay, and it's like, well, what do you mean Jim Crow? And you speak about what that era meant. It's like, okay, I, I, I get it now. But even though I get it, I don't know what to do with that information now. And that's where I think the, the Marine Corps commandant took a big step forward as a leader and said, okay, I got this information. It is divisive. It's a vestige of Jim Crow. These people, you know, threw away their oaths and decided to fight for another side. And he decided to make that change. So yeah, those conversations have occurred, but it has not been a, an outsider kind of discussion. I think they recognize you. you, They recognize me. They see me as being a black woman and perhaps they're like, okay, I, I, I now have this, this in front of me. So this means something. And I, I, for most people that I've discussed this topic with, it's been a good discussion. In in your research, uh, you know, we talk about the what the commandant said about the symbol being divisive, and we imagine that the names can be divisive as well. Do we have much polling data on the impact of these symbols and these names on people who are serving? Like, do we have a sense of service members who themselves have expressed broad based concern or dissatisfaction uh, or alienation as a result of these uh, symbols and names? No, and I think this is where the entire department kind of fell short after the Gulf War, because after the Gulf War, we really stopped studying racial issues and we kind of switched over to more gender based issues for study. But it's interesting because the leaders that I have spoken to about this, you know, the first thing they say is, well, none of my black troops have ever said they had a problem with being stationed at, uh, you know, Camp Beauregard. And I'd ask, well, did you ever ask them? Because it's been my experience that most people just kind of come to work and they recognize that it's there. I I would venture to say that there are a lot of black troops that understand what those names mean and just have chosen not to take it up as an issue. 
But I do strongly suggest that there is a poll that's done because there isn't any there isn't any data that I could see in my research that we've ever asked the temperature on this from across the services, particularly as it relates to uh, what the feelings are from Black military members, mm-hmm. which is why I was glad that this was actually a topic that I could study for the War College. Sure. Uh, do we have a sense of what motivated the uh, the commandant of the Marine Corps to make the decision that he did. I, I I say this with all respect to all of the armed forces, but it seems like a a pretty significant uh, sort of political act on the part of the leader of one of the services that is often the least interested in making big political statements. Yes, I was extremely surprised when I read about that, to be honest with you. I I would not have expected the Marine Corps to be the first one out the gate with something like that. I I honestly thought it would have been my service, Um, (laughs) you know, because my service, I've seen Confederate flags on Air Force bases. I've seen the bumper stickers. I've seen the the little pictures in in cubicles. It's there. You know, I've I've had troops in the past come to me when I was a younger officer and say, hey, you know, my roommates got this huge Confederate flag in our dorm room. And what am I supposed to do? Because I I do not feel comfortable here with that. And Mm -hmm. so he could have just, he could have taken his own poll, Ron. I'm not quite sure what motivated him to do that. But, you know, I, that's the thing that I think as leaders, we have to do. It's, it's this reflection that we're constantly going through and, and we're listening to our people and we're talking to people. And he could have just come up with the decision that, Hey, this is one of those symbols that just, it's not going to be allowed on, on my base. And so mm-hmm. I, that's, that's pretty much what I would just assume to guess. Vanessa, was it General McChrystal who published the essay last fall? about removing the portrait of Robert E. Lee from his office? It was. He published that in 2018. Ron, when he came out with that, I would have expected the Army to just like jump on top of that and just kind of push it forward. I expected to see more essays coming out from general officers from the Army, more colonels discussing the issue. I That's what I expected to see come out of that. This is way before mm-hmm. I entered the War College and had this idea about historical mindedness. I knew that the Confederacy was an issue. I knew that nine church members had just been gunned down in Charleston, you know, where my installation is. Um, I knew that we also had this big march in Charlottesville where you've got people displaying the Confederate flag. And so all of these things are happening. But the army just kind of said, um, you know, these people stood for something at one time and uh, we're just going to have to like learn to live with it. And to me, that was a tremendous opportunity lost. And I guess, although we there was not a lot of follow up to General McChrystal, there was no there was no direct pushback either, right? Am I correct in remembering that it was largely just uh, silence on the part of the leadership? It was silence, and it almost felt like there might have been. It it felt to me like there might have been just a maybe an agreement that this is just something we're not going to touch because this is a charged political debate, and. In my opinion, yes, it it is political, but these are decisions that the army can make on its own to change 
installation names. It's it's within the guidelines. So this is not something that we would even have to seek approval from a bunch of different people. I mean, I I joked that, you know, wow, this would be interesting if after everybody went back to base, after we got done with our shelter in place orders, that all the base names were changed and would anybody even notice, you know? But um you know, it's it's just one of those kind of things that it just kind of it, people got quiet about it and it didn't go anywhere. And that was extremely frustrating. That is a, a paradox of the armed forces in a democratic society that I, I wanted to, to get at with you a little bit, that there are com- commanders have a great deal of latitude within the military. So in the commandant of the Marine Corps can make an announcement, can give an order. The chief of staff of the army or command- a commanding general can do this. And yet at the same time, they they do express uh, or many of the leaders will express a concern about uh, about uh, undermining unit cohesion, undermining morale by forcing a decision on service members um, that might make them unhappy. Um, and I, I wonder, is this, is this the kind of thing where, uh, military commanders can be tempted to use unit cohesion or not wanting to, to upset the uh, rank and file as an excuse not to act? Um, or is this, should this be a real concern on the part of a commander not to make, uh, unnecessarily, uh, radical changes or demands upon the rank and file? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, yeah, I do hear commanders say things like that. Well, that would just make, you know, the people mad. And I, I, I kind of push back on that a little bit. And I, you know, my first question is, well, you know, we should be making data-driven decisions. So firstly, has a poll been taken? And that's the impression that you get from a poll. If not, who is within your circle that you've discussed this with? How broad is your circle that you've you've come to this conclusion that you don't believe that the people that you actually command actually want this change as well? Mm-hmm. So I I strongly think that we need to put this in the hands of the troops from all the different services and take a temperature poll and see what they think about it. Before we just say, well, you know, if we do this, you know, this is going to break apart unit cohesion. And I have to ask, are we truly cohesive if we know that we're serving at an installation that is named for someone who was all about disunity within the United States? So those are the kinds of things that I would actually push back on. Right. Yeah. And and I guess that's the that's what I'm, I'm wrestling with, because the the implication of the uh, Marine Corps Commandant's comments, and even the implications of General McChrystal's comments along these lines, is that in a changing society, if the armed forces want to appeal to broader segments of society, then we have to be uh, cognizant of the fact that these symbols will look different to different people. And uh, since we don't have the direct data, do, is it your, your I, I won't say expectation, but let's say, is it your hope that uh, armed forces that were more cognizant of the damage that certain symbols can do to people's impression of the military, that this could lead to uh, better recruiting, broader recruiting, better retention? Do we have a sense of there could be a connection there? I absolutely do think so. I mean, you know, a lot of our folks, they watch TV, they have access to social media, they see what's going on right now. 
they understand that you have people walking around with a Confederate flag and, you know, people saying, well, you know, these colors don't run. And, you know, um, we have this whole debate that's going on with Nathan Bedford Forrest out of Tennessee and what he Mm -hmm. stood for and and what he actually committed with the Fort Pillow massacre. And so we are aware of these things. We know that they're happening. And so when you now say, okay, we're going to be inclusive and and we want to have an armed service that is reflective of our society, and then you bring this, this troop into your fold, into your installation, and now he's stationed or she is stationed somewhere that's named for a Confederate. I mean, it's, 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 it's weird. It's strange. And I would venture to believe that most people believe it's strange. They just don't know what to do because it's so deeply entrenched. It's such an old issue, but it has never really gone away. It's always been there. So one of the discussions, Ron, that, that comes out of this is, well, why didn't people complain when it was happening? Mm-hmm. And I have to remind people about our history. Think about when this occurred. A lot of these decisions, as you mentioned, Ron, happened at the turn of the century. So at that time, Black people didn't have a lot of rights. And if they got too out of line with complaining about things, and there were repercussions from that. And that goes from you know, the attack that occurred in Oklahoma. This goes to the Red Summer of 1919. These activities, which unfortunately military vets were victims of, those decisions to name these installations occurred during those times. The monuments, when you look at the timeline of when monuments were erected across the South, those were all in line with a Jim Crow era. So you have to cons- you have to consider that during that time, the people who were most offended by this, they didn't have a lot to say publicly because it could mean a threat on their lives. And those who did decide to protest about it, the monuments just went up anyways, is what occurred uh, in 1905 in, in Virginia. Um, in Richmond, Virginia, during the Memorial Day March. That's exactly right, what right. happened. Well, and, and that's true that at the time these uh, decisions were made, the force itself was segregated. Um, we've come a long way from there. Well, and let's let's end then with a, a, a looking forward. So how do you see the conversation continuing uh, based on what we've seen in the Marine Corps, you know, based on basically maybe even people listening to this particular podcast today, but how do we, how do you imagine this question being debated going forward? Do you think that there's the possibility of any kind of movement institutionally? I absolutely do because I, I believe in our leaders and I believe our leaders want to have a great service. I believe that they want to live in a great America, an inclusive America. I think that that's probably one of their biggest goals that they have. I mean, when you look at that people are, you know, number one in the United States Army, and that goes across all the services. And so when you look at that, you look at our values. I know that our military leaders want for us to have an inclusive service. So that aside, I do see this debate continuing. I would love for people to get their hands on my research project. And I would love for these discussions to occur in in war colleges across all the services. I do believe that this should be a discussion because it doesn't just affect black people in these different services. It affects everyone. 
So it's it it shouldn't just be a, a tale of of two people serving in the military. It's one. It's inclusive, and it's all encompassing. And so that that's why it has to take place. Well, all right. Well, Vanessa, I certainly uh, hope that this discussion will continue, and I'm glad that you are uh, so willing to put yourself out there and to encourage this discussion. And really, thank you for joining us today on a better piece. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you, Ron. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all of the programs and send us suggestions for future programs. And most importantly, after you subscribe to A Better Peace, because of course you should subscribe to A Better Peace, please rate and review this podcast on the podcatcher of your choice because that helps other people to find it too. We're always interested in hearing from you and we're always interested in hearing from more of you. So we look forward to future programs, but until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.